0: i'm michael lane i'm the president of liftport group we've been running these dare greatly space shows for since about october last year so uh thanks for joining us and sticking with us as the community that we're building grows uh, really appreciate that a couple couple quick announcements as you know we kind of focus on a show that's got kind of three components right we talk about space policy we talk about money and we talk about infrastructure, infrastructure in space. And we do that with three different kinds of shows. One is a policy deep dive into a document. We did that a couple of days ago with space capital and really looking at the new $6 billion that have gone into our industry in the last three months. So that seems like a really big deal, except when you compare it to artificial intelligence and general AI that's 10 billion dollars in that industry and that industry is like minutes old where ours is decades old so know it kind of puts in perspective so we dig deep into a document we sometimes do a news show and our third kind of show is the kind we're going to have tonight where we have a guest we've been doing this for a while we've got some great speakers and guests on our channel so i really want to urge everyone to go to our uh, our youtube channel always you know share like and subscribe that's youtube.com slash liftport. You can go to our Discord channel if you want to join our community. Definitely encourage that. It's, uh, it's small, but it's mighty. Our shows are regularly broadcast in, uh, in Spotify. So definitely make sure you look at Dare Greatly Space. There are several dare greatly titled shows. So you wanna make sure you get the right one. And if you want to stay up to date with what we're doing on Eventbrite, feel free to take a look at that. Uh, We've got some stuff coming up in the near future. We're hosting the Mars Coin Expo. I'll put a link to that up in a moment. That is the only cryptocurrency backed by physics. So just let that sink in for a second. I wouldn't. I'm not normally somebody who uh, promotes, you know, digital currencies, but but this one's definitely got my attention. So we're happy to host them. This is our third time hosting them. We've got some kind of big stuff happening next week on Tuesday. I can't name who the uh, uh, speaker is, but the Space Frontier Foundation is kicking off their Pioneers series, pioneers of space commercialization. We've now hosted six interviews. We will be broadcasting them on Tuesdays, this normal time, five o'clock on the West Coast, eight o'clock on the East Coast. Those are great. We have some, uh, we've had some really cool interviews. This first one kind of shook me up a little. I was pretty impressed by it. So really happy to have that. And uh, had some good news today. The uh, Space Frontier Foundation is actually going to expand their agreement with us. So that's that's good news. That's new news for us. We've got several guests lining up for the end of July. We've got Les Johnson, author, uh, director of NASA's Advanced Concepts team down in Marshall. He's former. He's doing a different project now. Fascinating guy, uh, Johnson, really, really interesting guy. That's going to be fun. We've got the folks from Gravidix and Starfish gonna join us here in the next few weeks. Just this afternoon, we got a commitment from some folks at ANSYS who are gonna join us. So yeah, it's it's been really fun uh, scheduling these things and there's some other stuff kind of in the works. So we'll get there. Uh, with that, I wanna just get straight into it. Uh, this is, I'm gonna bring in Gary, uh, just a moment. Gary, hi, how are you? How's that? There we go. Great. Okay. Oh, yeah. Gary, we don't, uh, we don't do bios on this show. I know that, uh, you have been on this show. You've been on shows of hours. Uh, I think this is the sixth time that started out in the early days of the pandemic. It might've been October, November, December, something like that of 2020. And then over time, we keep coming back to you. Why do we keep coming back to you? Because you're growing. You're showing what a a small space startup uh, is really capable. But in all of our other shows, I've read, you know, paragraph long bio. This show, we we dig deeper. In past shows, you've only had 20 minutes, 15 minutes, half an hour. This is an hour, and we're going to go kind of behind the scenes a little. So, rather than me read off a boring bio, uh, we want to spend about 10 15 minutes digging into your origin story. So, who are you? Where are you coming from? Why are you here?
1: Yeah, so uh, I'm Gary Cowan, as you mentioned. Uh, thanks for having me, by the way. It's, it's great to be on you. again. <laughs> yeah, I know a lot of progress in the last few years, uh, but where do I come from? I have, you know, I, well, I originally come from, from Western Pennsylvania which is kind of relevant in a way because now we're doing metal processing and uh, it sort of goes back to the old history of, of Pittsburgh as a, as a steel town, as sort of the, the origin of Andrew Carnegie, which is kind of a nice tie-in for us because we want to be the steel mills of the next industrial revolution. So um, I, I, like, I like that connection, but I've been out in Colorado for, geez, since 1996, but you know, I always had this this fascination for space. When I was a kid, actually the earliest thing I remember this is how I kind of got to this place. I remember probably back in the late 80s, maybe early 90s, there must have been a popular science article about moon bases or something. And I wish my parents had saved this thing that I made. But I had you know taped together like 18 pages of graph paper. And I drew out this like intricate lunar base with all the things that I thought should go on a lunar base. Right. And, you know, it, it really is kind of evidence of, of how I've had this Interest since since uh, since the early days of, of my life, but I ended up going to the Air Force Academy. I thought that was my ticket to become an astronaut. I would go and you know, like probably I don't know how many other cadets <laughs> have gone to the Air Force Academy thinking I know I'll go, I'll get an astro degree, I'll uh, I'll become a test pilot, and then I'll become an astronaut, right? Like right. You know, that, that's kind like of the traditional path, right? So you know I I went that that way, but while I was there quickly figured out that maybe the military lifestyle wasn't quite right for me okay. I hadn't you know hadn't exploreed my young freedom uh, prior prior to that very much and I just kind of balked at the at the constraints that you know you get from a military environment ended up sticking it out for two years and two months and left right before I would have been committed to stay and okay. went to Boulder Colorado uh, and then ended up uh, for for a variety of reasons ended up getting into the Art sciences school instead of continuing in engineering actually thought that I could transfer to engineering you know because ah, I was doing all these academic credits and it was doing really wealthy caby piece of cake, right, and, right, I guess right. You and I just completely underestimated the difficulty of going from no freedom to absolute freedom <laughs> As like a you know 19 year old kid. Yeah, anyway, my grades weren't great that first semester and, and transferring over wasn't really an option anymore. So I sort of adapted and pivoted a little bit in my own life and uh, decided to do economics with a business minor always had this eye on entrepreneurship as well so this was you know I had done some stuff when I was much younger of course like a lot of kids do but but here's where I really started to try things out Had some friends that kind of inspired me as well and ended up starting my first startup right out of college and that in, in a way was sort of my way of exploring that creative engineering sort of capability to make stuff and I created a company called Knight Riders where we drove people home in their own cars and they had too much to drink. Sort of like, uh, you know, it, it achieved some of the goals that Uber does today, yeah. but before there were smartphones, before there was Uber, this was 2001 to 2005. Okay. And this was my first startup experience. And, you know, it was a challenging kind of business to run, but you know, in the end, couldn't quite make a profit out of it. We did raise some money, kind of went through the whole life cycle of business, sort of scrappy, bootstrap, get things going then raised a little bit of money from angel investors, completely underestimated how much to raise, you know, like all the mistakes that you can make as a startup had right. to learn the hard way. It was like an MBA in real time. Um, <laughs> and, and and then it went, went through that process. And at that, you know, in that process, I was already, already had not that great of credit. I had like really literally nothing to lose. So it was right, yeah. all on the line. There was no plan B. It was just, going to do this business going to be massive. We're going to be multi-hundred million dollar business. We have this map of the United States, all the cities we were going to go to. Yeah, right. exactly. <laughs> Cannot
0: be a timid entrepreneur. Not,
1: right? yeah. like, Especially if you're, you're trying to raise money at, at, at like 22 years old like that. No,
0: no. You know, I, don't no know, I don't know any successful capital raise that starts
1: with, I'm going to start small. Right. right, right. From outside investors, that's just not how it works. But yeah. so yes, yeah, so we we did that, and you know it, it was successful in many ways. We you know we took a lot of people home safely. We created this whole concept. We were able to you know get it to work and everything. But it was very hard to make a profit. And you know we didn't have the you know contractor model that Uber has today. Um, it was employees because we wanted to tell them how to dress, we wanted to tell them where to be and how to behave. So they really were employees, right? Yeah. And and most people don't want to work for like two hours when there's this peak demand. So. You know, we we were employing people for longer than we needed them. And so they were not underutilized in the front and back end and they were overutilized in the middle demand. So there's a lot of challenges just fundamentally to the business. Uh, But they go through the whole life cycle. We expanded from Boulder to Denver and went through the whole process. In the end, though, you know, because there was no plan B. We just ran that thing until like people started turning things off on us, like until we hadn't paid our bills and they right. locked the doors on the warehouse where we kept our stuff and yeah. <laughs> our phones got shut off and all that kind of stuff. So they, it was it was a real like go for broke. Right. And, and um, you know, uh, in the end, that's what happened. Yeah. And we it was it was a very emotional, like challenging experience. Give me give me those years. This was uh, we, we, we operated from 2001 to 2005. Okay. Uh, no, I started that business. Uh, yeah, I, w- well, I was born in 78, so I would have been 22, I guess, when we started the business. Okay, 22 to 26. Okay,
0: all right, all right. That's, uh, right, that's-
1: before I, right, right before I graduated from college is when we started the business. So right. Okay. There. And so you know, you're 26 had- and broke, right? You're, you're
0: 26, you've gone to the academy, uh, didn't like the constraints, mm-hmm. left, went to school, didn't like the first program, shifted programs. And then created night night driver. Is that night riders
1: is what you call it. You run right. around on motorcycles at night. You know? Right. Okay. Right. Okay.
0: I mean, that's that's a lot. I mean, that's a lot at 26. Nice job. Yeah.
1: Right yeah. Yeah. It was it was a lot. I mean, it it didn't it was fun. You know, it was like it was you know it was time of my life really at that point. But you know, then I had to go through the whole mess of experience of like, okay, now what's my identity after my business collapsed, and that was my identity. You know, as a young startup founder. And sort of spent many years kind of recovering from that. So I went to the corporate world, did some consulting work for, for a consulting company, Did then moved into their finance department. I was really interested in investments. So I got my charter financial analyst designation to manage, manage equities and do the analysis and whatnot, uh, spent some time doing FP&A kind of stuff, and then... Went into a boutique asset manager for a few years where I was running their portfolio strategies and doing trades. So it was a very small firm. So we kind of did a lot of everything. Tried my hand at that for a while. Their strategy started to not work so great. So we, you know, I left. We were, I was about to have a baby. I left and tried to find a job that was, you know, more like had more upward trajectory built into it. I'm back into FPA in a SaaS software kind of role here in Denver. It was a company that was involved in workforce management, and so I, w- I ended up starting out as like a I don't know senior manager or something. Ended up as the director of finance at that company, and then all the while, right around 20, you know, I was still kind of tracking the space industry this whole time. Right. I figured out how to get into it. Always sort of feeling like there were moments where I felt like only 30% of my brain was being focused on the work that I was doing, because I was kind of bored with this, you know, just finance work. You have a question?
0: How? How? I mean, having an MFA—not masters in fine arts, but financial analyst—that's a pretty rare skill in this field, right? It's clear, like, right? A lot of people come in with engineering and they want to be managers. Me, I'm a manager that likes to speak engineering language, right? Like, but but a finance degree in this sector is pretty rare, right? How many MFAs in this field do you know?
1: I don't. I think I know any of it's a CFA. I don't think I know any of the CFAs in oh, the CFA CFA.
0: Right. So you, I'm gonna I'm gonna make an exaggeration and say you know a hundred or five hundred or a thousand people in
1: the <laughs> sector. Something like that, probably. And how many are CFAs? Very, very, very. Few. Maybe one or two. Right. I can try go through my LinkedIn and find figure it
0: out. But <laughs> right, right, but it's but it's not it's not an ME, it's not an EE, it's not a PhD. Right. I mean, it's a pretty. Sp- How and we're gonna how do you springboard from a finance background to space? Now you say okay, only thirty percent of your brain was occupied. You're bored, okay, you're daydreaming. Space. How did, how did, because there's a lot of ways you could have gone, right? There's a lot of things you could have done that was not space. So, I mean, I I,
1: I considered going back to school to become an an engineer. I'll like start over basically, because that was what all the cool jobs looked like they were doing. Um and you don't really see the other roles that you have in space industry advertised so much, you know, yeah. from space companies. But I was watching, you know, SpaceX do what it was doing around that time frame, and things really started to take off. You know, I saw Planetary Resources and Deep Space Industries were, were well funded around like 2017, 2016. And some of that stuff was starting to happen, and I really felt like, you know, now was the time. And I wanted, I like desperately wanted to get in, but didn't know how and i i found out about the uh, international space university and that really was my it became the alternative to like going back to school to become an engineer and that was how i got my seat at the table okay now there might be another way to do this so at first i wasn't sure if it was real you know i think this is a common thing that people feel like when they hear about it but it's just not that well known and it doesn't sound like something that would exist but it does and it's been around for a while and i learned that from talking to other people who you know have been through program did my due diligence and decided it was, you know, it was worth attending, um, you know, that was really, I mean, that was, that became the next best time of my life because I spent nine weeks kind of immersed in space. But that was my way of getting into the into the space industry. I used ISU as sort of, I kind of needed a a reason to feel like I had a justification to sit at that space table. I needed a foot in the door uh, just for me intellectually. And I, I know in retrospect, I probably could have started the company and figured this stuff out without going to ISU, but but that was something that was really important for me to to be able to do and, and get. And it was there that I I went there with the intention to start a company. I wanted to get back in entrepreneurship. I wanted to start a space company. I had read Peter Diamandis' book, uh, Bold. And, yeah. and reading that, like, also, I think might have been where I heard about ISU. And, and that inspired me to to think, like, actually, I don't need to be an engineer to do a space company. If I find the right people to partner with, you know, I can do this. So, I, that was the other piece that kind of inspired the, the, that, that path. And it was at ISU that I found my, my co-founders.
0: I am sure that ISU would love that endorsement and that uh, acknowledgement. Um, for those folks who don't know, I'm the uh, past president of the US Alumni Association for ISU. So I've been involved with the school for 15 years. Uh, Just before the call, I was saying I didn't have gray hair when I went to school, so that's a big change. Um, 2008 to the Barcelona program. So were you in the summer program or the master's program?
1: I was in the summer program in Cork, Ireland in 2017.
0: Okay. So ISU runs programs around the world. They have what they call a floating campus in the summertime. It's 10, 11 weeks, uh, somewhere in the world. My class was in Barcelona. His was in in, uh, in, in Cork. They're all over. They're all over the world. Uh, they have a summer summer hemispheres program in Australia. They're doing some stuff in South America now. Yeah, it's a pretty interesting school. It's a wide but not deep education. It is a generalist education. And that's, uh, that's its strength. And... And hats off to it, like I was really glad to do it. I did some something similar to what you did, Gary. I went to school after I had been working on the space elevator for several years. I'm like, there's stuff I don't know. I need to get a broader perspective, so very cool. All right, so you went to ISU, went to a summer program. What happened there?
1: Yeah, so at ISU, you know, before I had went, I actually quit my job um, where I was director of finance uh, because I didn't want to, I didn't burn my boats, but I like didn't want to be lured back in. I could have taken a you know, sabbatical and come right. back to the job. but I knew if that option was open to me, it would, it would have been pretty hard to pass up probably. Yeah, so I, I quit my job and went there kind of in the beginning. I was first couple of weeks, I was just kind of meeting people and trying to see if anybody was interested in, in starting a, a, a startup, and I had previously decided that, that I wanted to do something that could, you know, I wanted to do something that was big that could make a dent in like humans' progression uh, into be- becoming sustainably off Earth, and I want to go to space someday. And so, like right. trying to make that happen and make, you know, make the cost come down is important. Um, so, you know, I was looking for something that was, I, n- I figured out while researching the school and in, in the background that the resources were going to be fundamental to to you know making that happen. That was the first thing that needs to happen and so when i was at icu I, I went around and looked for people who had similar thinking and uh found a few people who were interested in doing this some of who are still you know co-founders of the company um and we, we literally just sat down in the room you know with a whiteboard and we said okay you know value chain for resources you, know, you have the extraction and you have manufacturing um and you got people talking about making water and like, that's the key, the key material we're going to produce. And then, oh yeah, we'll also have some metals and maybe we'll do something with that too. But that was kind of like an afterthought, Good but you know, we sort of were like, well, you, know, you can't build space stations out of ice. You can turn it into oil for space or whatever, but like you can't make space stations out of it. So we're going to, going to need to kind of fill that middle spot of processing that material from extracted raw materials into something that manufacturers can use. Cause on the other end of the spectrum, there were already companies doing manufacturing too. You had made in space, and like some other companies that we're talking about doing in space manufacturing, uh, you had a bunch of mining companies and some lunar landers that were all talking about extraction. So we saw that as an opening. I also learned about um, space debris, really, I mean, I knew about it, but only a little bit. And you know, I kind of realized the scale of it. And we sort of asked a naive question because, I, again, coming completely from the outside, like, like, why don't we mine the space debris first instead of trying to go after asteroids because it's already refined metal and we know where it is. Um, I mean, obviously, there are some like challenges, you know, in terms of orbits and, and that sort of thing. But that was the, the question we asked. And we asked that to one of the co-founders of Made in Space when he was doing a class to uh, with us, a presentation to our class. And, um, uh, you know, he's like, yeah, I mean, I've been wanting somebody to, to do that. Like, that would be great. If you can make materials, we could probably use them. So, like that was not all we needed was to say, OK, this will be the first thing we make. We'll use that as a way to to uh, develop the metal processing capability in space. And then when the asteroid materials and the, and the lunar materials become available, we will already know how to process metal in space. Right. And also we can make this thing valuable that's currently just a big you know, cleanup project. Um, and that might close the economic loop on space debris removal. So that sort of kills two birds with one stone in a way um, and makes the whole project more valuable. So that was how it started originally. Okay. Yeah.
0: Uh, is that about the time when you kind of did this? Like, I'm going to call it a divergence into Luxembourg because you were waiting on Luxembourg for a long time.
1: Yeah, that's right. So, so I was the only American on the co-founding team originally. Yeah. um So, bringing the rest of the team to the United States seemed very difficult. Right and, right. and Luxembourg had just announced their base resources initiative. So we're like, well, you know, maybe being a small fish in a small pond is better than being a small fish in a giant pond. So, like, we could take our chances at Luxembourg. It's very targeted to what we're doing. They were right down, you know, right in Europe, um, you know, and and they had had right at that time when we were leaving ISU, uh, they had a, a contest, space exploration masters contest that was right. all around resource extraction. So like, well, let's just throw an idea in there. They didn't yeah. get very far because it was pretty immature at that point. But um, but but one of our classmates got all the way through, like to the finals. Oh. Like she, I don't think she got to the very final round, but she got through most of it. And she still us what what they did when they brought her to Luxembourg and how they introduced her to these people. And also, just coincidentally, Gary Martin, who was one of our um, advisors at yeah. ISU, had just moved from NASA or was about to to the Luxembourg Space Agency or Ministry of Economy at that time. Right. And um, and so we're like, well, we know somebody over there. We can get all those meetings. So, you know, we just went and recreated our own meeting schedule right before a conference they had. And they liked the idea uh, at a high level. And so you know, they encouraged us to propose it uh, to to their Luxembourg Space Agency as an investment opportunity. And we went through a few rounds with them. The idea was different than it is now. It was yeah. much bigger project. We were talking about building like a five kilo, you know, five thousand kilo platform in Geo and it was gonna be like you no, know, it would have been like a billion dollar project. Right. <laughs> and and you know this was like okay, but we, we didn't have any money. We didn't know really what we we're doing. Like so they are like, I don't know, like we like the idea, but this is a bit ambitious. Like you right. have pressure yeah. revenues and stuff. And we hadn't figured out how to make it smaller, um, so we went through a few rounds with them. Couldn't quite get them over the hump, uh, and you know, and then we decided to move the company to, to the United States. We did that I think course. that's when I
0: first encountered you, right? I think it was an
1: ISU connection
0: that started our, our
1: mm-hmm. conversation. Yeah, possibly.
0: Right. Well, long before we were doing the media stuff, it was it was really focused on uh, building out uh, a Lagrange for us, building out the Lagrange station. And then and then harvesting what we can harvest it so, yeah. was, was the idea then okay uh so what year is that that's um
1: I moved the company 2019
0: 2019 yeah yeah okay so then the world caught fire in 2020 so <laughs> let's talk about let's talk about 2020 right uh where where were you biologically physically in the world where were you like Mentally, emotionally, and where where was the company
1: at? Yeah, so I was in Denver. You know, the company had gone through three rounds of cycles with Luxembourg. We had been turned down, but they kind of like, you can apply again. And we're like, okay, you know, three is enough. We get the idea. So right, yeah. we, we decided to come to the US, but we, we had not figured out how to move forward at that point. I mean, honestly, like the company could have easily been shut down. we we were at a point then when we were looking into, you know, well, what if we do like uh, e-waste recycling? Maybe we'll need that refining capability, you know, in space. And so that fits to the puzzle and it's a terrestrial application, but it was really like hunting around for a terrestrial application because the the market was not ready to do this yet. It was still right. a little early. And- uh, we haven't You haven't know, actually talked about
0: what you're doing. So just kind of keep that in mind when we're talking about
1: this. Oh, right. Yeah, so well, okay. We were trying to develop a technology to, to melt down and process space debris. And turn it into materials for manufacturing, basically. Right, is, the, right. is the long and short of it. And so we we're building what we call a space foundry. And that, that was still the idea then. It was this large scale space foundry. Um and uh, and so anyway, we, we were trying to figure this out. We knew we would need a refining capability at some point. We wanted to have one um so that we could not just melt things down, we could also separate them into different elements and then reconstitute them into different alloys and so on. Um so at that point in time, we were kind of floating around trying to figure out the right path forward. I think we had also gone through CDL partially at that creative destruction lab, an accelerator. Uh, we went through three rounds of that. That took us down another windy path. And, you know, around that time, everybody kept telling us, like, you guys have something here. You just have to figure out, like, you know, maybe you need to put it on the shelf for a year or something. Like, yeah, you and other people were saying, like, this is something that's going to be real. And it was, we knew it was something. And then in uh, in 2020 in march of 2020 i had built a relationship with onhe uh, above madrid at Colorado school of mines because they have the space resources program here and they're right down the road um and so he had a student in his class named joe welski who is now our final co-founder and the cto of the company he was taking his you know certificate course there he's like he wrote this paper on doing uh, aluminum extraction on the moon building a smelter on the moon like what it would take and I was like, hey, you got to meet Gary. You guys both want to melt metal in space. Like, you're right down the road, and he lives in Fort Collins. So, anyway, this is March. And we got introduced, like, right at the beginning of March in 2020. And then, you know, pandemic hits. Right. And we never met in person that year. And so we right. started working on it. We were still doing this, you know, tiptoeing with this e waste idea. We we're trying to make that a real thing. And But then we did a NIAC proposal for the Space Foundry that didn't get accepted. Then, because of the pandemic, NASA pushed earlier their SBIR uh, schedule. And they released a uh, a topic that was all about um, recycling, salvaging and recycling metal from large objects, not on the space station. Okay, I'm like, what the hell? We've been talking about this for years now. Like, it's like yeah. they read our minds. But we didn't talk to anyone at NASA about this. This was just like, you know, lucky. Also at the same time, Made in Space and Tethers have both been acquired. So they were off the table for, you know, applying for this, this funding, which might have been who it was written for. I mean, I, I don't know, but... Um, we, end, we ended up applying to that, and because Joe is like this classic maker, you know, he's a mechanical engineer, he's a businessman, like he knows how to write these proposals. You know, he, he yeah, it, it, well, he kind of he hadn't done it before, but he he was better at it than, than we were. We wrote the proposal, got accepted, uh, you know, in February of '21, and that's really what kicked it off. And Joe also had you know a old friend who was also an angel investor and had, you know, had, had, made wait, some wait, 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 February 21 was when you submitted. No, um, no, we submitted January, like right at the end of December of 2020. Okay. And then we got notified, I think late February of 21 that we, we had not- that, that is when we had our first, uh, on, on screen interviews. So that um, was okay. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. 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 We, we would have gotten accepted by after that. I think yeah. we, were, okay. we were expecting to hear about it. And then, yeah. uh, and then we got, we got this deal. Friends and family kind of investor, our first investor came in, basically matched the funding that we got from NASA. Right. And that allowed us to go, you know, me and Joe became the first full-time employees in May. That's when we both put our other things we were doing for money all in. That's from the contractors. We had NanoRacks on board as well as a subcontractor. You know, and we went and we had mines. That was a crucial subcontractor partner as well. And from there, and that's first phase one, we went from you know, concept to working prototype. Um, in October of that year in less than six months. Right. We, we built it. We did a demo in front of, you know, like an audience of like 120 people online, in person in Australia. We had Neumann Space on that one. They they took we had Astroscale, Nerax, us and Neumann Space, we did a whole end-to-end demonstration of capturing, you know, theoretically capturing debris. We made a rod on stage and we and we Neumann Space fired it up in their, you know, their clear uh, vacuum box and showed how it could make thrust. And so that, like getting that much success out of a phase one, I think really helped us get to the phase two. And really since then, that's, I mean, the NASA phase one is really what set the company in motion from just pitch decks to actual building stuff and making it real hardware. And since then, we've become really become a company that makes stuff, builds stuff, iterates quickly. Uh,
0: that, that's That's the recipe for success, make stuff, build stuff, iterate quickly let's uh let's go a little deeper into that um, that demo because it really was a cha- a game changer for you uh, we, we've hosted we've hosted a similar demo uh, on, on our channel with y'all but go through that who are the partners what did you accomplish partner a it hands it to partner b to partner c to partner d uh, give us that give us that value chain for a second
1: yeah, so AstroScale was on the front end.
0: There, they were. Right. So AstroScale, well funded now, were not
1: well funded at the time. I mean, they were much better funded than we were. But, you know. Yeah, but they're not. They weren't at the level that they're, they're at. Much now. more well funded I mean, now than they were then. Yeah. yeah. But yeah. they had just opened up their Denver office, I think, where they were about to. So it's kind of around that time frame. They had people in the U.S. at that point. And which the, is in Denver also. And, I know the answer, but what does AstroScale do? Yeah, Astroscale does debris removal, and now they've also expanded into um, satellite servicing. And okay. so they, they kind right. of satellite so they're going to go
0: out and find
1: stuff, right? Correct. So their their role was to be the trucks that go out and get the materials. Okay, go so get the materials. Nanoracks it was at that time they were focusing on two concepts that were relevant. They had their cutting technology, which was related to this Outpost program, um, which was all about taking existing upper stages and turning them into modules. Um, or, like, extended platforms for doing stuff. On. So um, they were about to test this cutting technology that they have now since tested in orbit. Um, but anyway, they did a presentation. So Astroscale presented on capture, NanoRacks presented on on cutting, as well as the Outpost program, which would be a great place to host, you know, this recycling concept. And then we had our machine, which was our first prototype, which had this, like, investment casting system. I actually have, like, uh, samples from that one here with me. So this is like a little, a little ingot basically that we cast in in a mold. Um, that was you know we used a strip of metal that went down. We melted down the metal, uh, cast it in a mold, and um, you know popped out a rod. And I stood there and like acted like I was the robot arm, you know, it's going to take it out. Uh, <laughs> but uh, yeah, it, w- it was it was you know it almost got stuck, and we had a backup plan like if that was going to happen. But um, you know gave it a little wiggle and it. it it finished its process, and we made two, we made two rods there on stage, and then um, and then we handed yeah. it off to uh, Neumann Space over Zoom, and uh, and we they were the ones who um, you know how, we had sent them a rod ahead of time, which had was a, like one of these and had a, a little hole drilled to the center, and the way their thing works is it has a spark maker on top that turns the metal into plasma, and that works a plasma thruster, so we had sent it to them, they fired it up they showed that we could basically take that debris that we had melted down and turn it into a rod and use it for propulsion. So we have captured space debris, use it for propulsion. And what that unlocks in, in the, you know, the, the solution set for space is, that means you can take a fraction of the mass of a debris object, turn it into propellant and use it to go get the next debris object. And you <laughs> have material left over that you can right. use to build stuff with or sell propellant to, to Space Force or whoever. Um, and and I, actually, that whole concept is what our recently awarded Space Force Directive Phase 2 is all about as well. So there's definitely some you know crossover from from these concepts. Right. Some of the right. state- Amazing. Amazing.
0: All right. So that took you from three people with part-time gigs trying to kind of make this thing work to uh, where, where are you at now? Uh,
1: you just told me. Just independently, but that took you from three people to what? So, so that that project was two full time, me and Joe, and then we had a couple of like consultants helping us as well. Um, and then the co-founders, the rest of the co-founders were you know Walter and Toby, who were over in, in Europe, were still involved as well, but they were working other jobs. Um, and so, and now now Joe is the, the other co-founder, and Kai Stats was also co-founder, is also a co-founder of the company Absolutely. too, and he was involved in the company at that time as well. We were we were the co-founders basically. Um, at the end of that, really, like, and very importantly, uh, this guy Steve Ward came on board just to kind of help out. He had moved to town. He knew Joe through his hobby of, uh, of Tesla coils and um, is kind of uh, has, is an inventor on that side, um, master at electronics. And so he came on and was just kind of helping out with the demo and then started to help Joe out with more things um, and took our power electronics that we had for that system from a box that was like a toaster oven down to this little card sized thing. Oh. And so that that was a kind of amazing breakthrough between SBIRs, right. um, and that has led to some other opportunities you know, that are, are happening now. But that that took us into, at the end of your, your phase one, you proposed a phase two, you know, we were, let's see, two two full-time plus co-founders and, and some contractors. Then we got our phase two from NASA, um, which we found out about in late February of, uh, of 2022. Um, and started working on that in May of 2022, um, and still at that point in time, we were uh, just a, a few people. Um, see, when did we bring on Lee? Lee, let's see, it's 2023, and uh, and we brought on Lee Steinke, who was, was our first like executive level hire, um, oil and gas background, and getting into the space industry. Yeah, I know you know her, um, so she came on, and um, I think I pointed her in your direction. Like I, think, oh, it's, awesome.
0: I <laughs> think it's I don't think it's I like it. I know her. uh she took over my job at uh, Conversations for the Future. I was the host for the Foundation for the Future. She took over that role. Peace out. I, I but I was just super impressed by her. And she was trying to figure out how to get into the industry. And I'm like, call Gary. I, I'm a hundred percent
1: sure that that's. The oh, one. Awesome. Well, that's that's great, and I appreciate that because she's been an amazing part of the company. So she came on as a you know kind of a consultant at first, helped us through some really chaotic applications and things, which was a great test for you know whether she really wanted to hang out with us or not. Um, and she liked it. Uh, and then you know she joined us full time in April twenty two, I guess. It's been a little over a year that she's getting closer to a year and a half um, that she's with us. We had raised a little bit more money at that point, so. I about that time, we maybe had raised 300000 or so to augment you know, what we were getting from these government contracts. And we went to the Seraphim, uh Space Camp that, that year as well. We sort of started work on the NASA contract. So now we're three full-time, four at that point. And uh, started going into the NASA contract. That was, I guess, middle, you know, summer of 2022, we went through the Seraphim Space Camp. Over that summer, we closed out our pre-seed round and raised $665,000 in that. Uh, got a grant from the state of Colorado at the same time as well, and so that allowed us. All those things, you know, had allowed us to grow the company even more. Today we are uh, 12 people, so we've really, you know, and, and I, that last year we did $220,000 in revenue, you know, from that NASA contract mainly, and you know this year we're on track to do 2.2 million. So like it's been a, a massive you know, wow. growth uh, in in uh, the company. God, that's amazing.
0: I mean, sincerely, c- congratulations. I mean, yeah, to, to kind of like in this industry, it's pretty hard to have a plan, execute to plan, and succeed, right? You know, so to go from I can I can really visualize uh, you hanging out with your buddies at ISU. Maybe there was beer involved. <laughs> and, <laughs> Because <laughs> it's ISU. Maybe daily, yeah.
1: <laughs> <laughs> maybe,
0: also Ireland. <laughs> maybe they were being involved. Maybe. I'm not, not putting you on the spot. But <laughs> I just have a hunch. Yeah. Um, but imagining like, okay, what does this future look like? Okay, we want to do resources, or we don't want to do resource extraction. We want to do resource uh, refinement. That's a hole out in the industry. And then step by labor a step you get there that's remarkable that's remarkable
1: we're not to be in space yet but
0: we are are, are working on an opportunity
1: to do it in 2025.
0: i'm gonna i'm gonna post one of the images uh
1: oh yeah that was the thing that happened last year yeah Uh, as part of our nasa project um you know we we wanted to test out the next version of the system in in a parabolic flight so that was part of the part of the plan and that's us doing the parabolic flight back in november so we actually have flown what you see here uh, on the two thing, the two machines you see on the back there is is the uh, casting portion of the machine. Okay. And what you can't see on the inside of it is this other box. That, so that the guy in front of the box sitting down is Steve Ward. Chris Fisher is also back there in the corner, right right behind me. He was running that casting machine as well. So there's a casting machine, and then there's another machine that does multi-coil um, electromagnetic induction to control the melt. The idea yeah. there—I the uh, saw
0: that was just astounding. The the uh, the melting oh yeah coil that you did live on screen uh, was pretty pretty astounding. And so you've taken this hard natural state piece of was it aluminum? What was it? Well,
1: it's a it's just sixty sixty one aluminum, a pretty common. Yeah. So it's
0: just a just a standard bar of aluminum. Yep use this induction coil, melted it into slag and then reshaped it into something else. Uh, now you've done that on on 0g, right
1: Yeah so we, we had our first experiment in 0g uh, doing the next version so that, that first one was a it was a uh, in what they call investment casting so casting into a mold right Now what we're doing is building a continuous casting system and the idea there is that if it's continuous casting you know, on earth they use that to make things like railroads and, and stuff that's long um, and so you on earth you have you, know, you have molten metal in a vat and it, it flows down through a uh, you know some kind of rolling device that changes its shape and then it runs down the line and cools off the the, the goal is to you know, make when it when it changes its shape and freezes the outside shell you freeze the outside shell enough to keep it from changing its shape back to a blob but inside it's still molten um, and also in space, we don't have the benefit of gravity. So we need, you know, we need another method. So uh, I'll talk about that first and then I'll talk about what happened with, with the, mol- with the melting, the, the coils system we have now is a multiple coil system. And the idea there is that we can actually control a magnetic minimum inside those coils contactlessly. And then with another coil, we can melt it. Um, and so that it melts the molten material. And then the other coils control its position and that stands in for gravity. this process so it it both heats the metal and moves it through to the continuous casting wheels or or the mechanism we use to cast it with and then um, that rod gets formed when we did this on 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 that version we had two wheels that were basically like pulleys so think about two pulleys coming together and make a circle shape in the middle um and and that's where they freeze but the line that's actually freezing them is very thin and so it has to be very precise the timing and the temperature and the speed and everything Um, And you only have 20 seconds or so on these parabolic flights uh, of microgravity, which we thought was enough. We calculated was enough. But there was a little delay in the thing getting started. And so by the time it actually started to push molten metal through the wheels, we we only had a few seconds left of micro-G. So about like this much of it got cast in zero-G. And then we did hyper-G. And there's all this molten metal inside this little shell that's going, like this <laughs> and, and the rest of it cast but it was casting under 2g basically at that point okay. and got stuck. And so chris like like a superhuman was standing there in front of this machine under hypergravity like taking off the wheels like undoing parts you know oh stop enduring microgravities can't do anything and then you know basically putting it back together again through a couple cycles of the flight um and we tried to run it again there were some other issues but you know like these things the point of these things is to understand the parameters that right. you need to change and adjust, so you can get it right the next time around. So we have another one scheduled for upcoming at the end of November this year as well. Um, nice. If next-
0: you need anybody to like carry luggage and <laughs>
1: just you know,
0: yeah, I, I want to do a flight. I want to do a flight. Oh well, I mean,
1: you need to do one. They're so amazing.
0: <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah.
0: All right. That is, that's a remarkable story. All right. So that's kind of where, where you've come from. Uh, we always talk about money here. So non diluted capital, others, other people call them contracts. Revenue. <laughs> yeah. Right. <laughs> how, how much, how much revenue uh, in total broad, broad numbers, but give us something we can use.
1: Yeah. So, so far, um, you know, you take this, the pre-seed money and the government contracts, We had 250,000 in a grant from the state of Colorado. I mean, that's, you know, most people wouldn't call that a contract, I guess. Uh, We had our pre-seed revenue investment, which was 665. You add those two things together with our, our two contracts we've now won, which was, you know, 125 from phase one with NASA, another 800,000 in phase two. And we just won a $1.7 million contract uh, for direct to phase two from the space force, which started in March. So all that together is just under $4 million in, you know, contracts. Um, And then we recently had our first commercial sale of this power converter product that has kind of spun out of some of this work as well, um, which is smaller dollars. I can't talk much about the details on on the the value of it, but it's still our first sale of of an actual product for commercial purposes. So, (laughs) you know, that that was pretty exciting as well.
0: Still, I mean, basically zero to four million in call it two and a half years.
1: Yeah. Two and a
0: half hard, lots of work years but still i mean that's the kind of story that you know individually you know i have a small company once upon a time you and i talked about how similar our companies mm-hmm. are, right um and uh you know just to, to see you just jump so far in such a more short amount of time it it gives me individually it gives my team hope it gives all an industry saying okay there is a path if you have the right niche, the right product, the right team. Uh, there is a path to grow the vision from I'm going to say a drunk whiteboarded ISU <laughs> into a uh, into a, uh, a a real company with a real team with a real chance of changing the future.
1: So, yeah, I a lot Stubbornness going into that one. <laughs> yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. It, it cost, right?
0: This is a journey of of joy and frustration, of mm-hmm. commitment and determination. Yeah, yeah, there's a cost to it for sure. Yeah, yeah, All right. So what's uh so that's where you're at now. You're doing a direct to phase two for space force. You have fin- yep. you you finished the NASA uh phase two or not?
1: So the NASA phase two officially ends, um, in a year in May, uh, but we are already like way ahead of schedule. So we've pretty much done most of the work there. Uh, Colorado school of mines is a huge partner on that one. And they're, they're still working on the detail, you know, some more work for the for the coil architecture and the map around all that, making that actually work well. But we're, yeah, that, that is kind of wrapping up. We have, you know, the, the, the next pair of like flight, which actually outside of that program, that's kind of run out of our other um, funding opportunities um, as well. But, um, yeah, so that that's that's happening. We also have had some really amazing <laughs> and kind of surprising benefits from this power power converter. If I could talk about that for a second, so that, sure. That addresses one of the key financial challenges for, for startups in space, especially well, all startups for, to some extent, I guess, but, but in space, it's a challenge because like this is especially at, at this part of the space economy. You, know, it doesn't have. There's no commercial market for materials yet. Right. Like, out in the future. And we don't know exactly when it's going to come. Like that's sort of a big unknown. Um, the government is interested in these technologies because we need to have them ready when we need to have them ready. You got to start now. But, right. but, uh, but you know, to find a way to get across that gap, we have to find some sort of today commercial revenue. So you're not just dependent upon burning investor capital constantly and right. giving away more equity in your company. The investors don't like that plan and they right. don't keep funding it. And they, and they won't. Often they won't invest in it if that's the plan. Anyway, it's right, too right. far out, right? Um, and so we we were we built this power converter. I told you how Steve uh, was like instrumental into shrinking it down, right? And he had this you know kind of outsider's perspective on how to architecture that thing. Um, and so we we built this power converter for our furnace because we needed to take a DC current turn into high frequency a high power AC current. Um, and we were, you know, at CSU with Neumann Space, like, talking about how we are going to make propellant for their thruster. And, uh, and we were talking to the experts at their propulsion, um, their plasma propulsion laboratory up there. And the guy's like, you know, this thing is a lot like a PPU for electric propulsion. Like, you could just, like, change, add a couple of this and that. And, like, this would be kind of an interesting electric propulsion system, you know, if, if the numbers work the way you think they are. It's like, no, that's cool. So we sort of investigated that a little bit. And because Steve is a brilliant maker also, you know, he's like, yeah, let's just like try something out. You know, let's make a PPU and and run a Hall Effect thruster in the lab and test it out. Sure. And so back in February, we did exactly that and it worked at like 98% efficiency. It's got a great, you know, mass and and size uh, factor better than what's out there on the market. And crucially it's high power. So we've learned that there's a lot of COTS you know, power, uh, power units you can get for, you know, hundred watts, 200 watts kind of systems, but, once you get above 500 watts, thousand watts, there's not a lot off the shelf, and these PPUs are made, you know, bespoke for these projects, and they have to get qualified every time, and like they're, you know, it's expensive, and 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 there's not a lot of suppliers for these things apparently, um, and so we thought, well, there's something there, it works. We'd also talked to Safran at at space at the IAC in Paris the previous year, and they were kind of interested in this idea a little bit, and and then we talked with them again, and uh, and so you know where it's all wrapped into is we have been able to now um we have it sold for a more of an isam solution uh that's that's going to be delivered here soon over the summer would be the first uh, I I in space assembly and manufacture yeah something along in that in that ballpark um and and then for safran they've followed through with this interest they have and recently we had um had them here in colorado we they brought over one of their you know one and a half to two and a half kilowatt size power thrusters uh their hall effect thruster which is electric propulsion system and they wanted to see if we could integrate that with our you know ppu concept and what we designed it to be is this sort of what we you know we call it a modular configurable electric uh power converter which you can say is if you spell out the letters uh, but um uh, anyway the point is that it's modular and scalable so each of the like the key components of that power converter are like Lego bricks. If we want to make it bigger, more power, we add more of them in, or we add two of them together. You know, there's different ways you can configure them to address a certain need. Um, add a new thing on the end, and what that allows us to do is to qualify each of those units once, and then when we want to build a different unit, we don't have to qualify the whole thing all over again. We just qualify the new part, maybe the combination a little bit less, you know, severely. Um, and that helps to save money and save time for the, you know, the people who are selling these things. But so Safran has come over and now we have that system for the next you know, few months. We're going to develop this into a full scale PPU and hopefully address the U S market with this combined, um, offering going into the, into the next couple of years here. So, you know, and since then we've, we've been approached by a couple other companies that have a need for PPUs. And it turns out that this is like a pretty lucrative, you know, potential market, um, where yeah. you get higher power of things. And this seems like the path forward for us in the next you know, to actually ger- generate commercial revenues over the next you know, couple of years.
0: Amazing. Um, all right. So you went from you know, kind uh, of call, call it nothing to something, <laughs> yeah, quickly, um, and now you are something, right? You are trying to build out this, uh, you know, the the alliances with uh, AstroForge and NanoRacks and.
1: Neumann, uh, no, it's not Newman, Is it? He says Neumann. It depends. Neumann. On you. <laughs> he all says right. Neumann. So I try to say Neumann now. Okay.
0: Uh, so you know, you've got those alliances. You've got the School of Mines. You've got Safran. Like you've got Air Force and, and NASA. Like all of these partners are starting to align. So we only have we only have about four minutes left. Where does this take you? push out to twenty twenty five, push out to twenty thirty, and push out to twenty thirty-five. Where where do you think you're gonna go in the not too distant future?
1: Yeah, so so we we see um, you know the opportunity to develop out this power converter business as sort of a separate line of business and bring on the right people in the capital to, to be able to do that expansion um, over over the next you could call it year or so. Um, you know, I, I'll see how fast we can actually Bring this combination to market and stuff, but hopefully by 25 we've got some solid offerings in there. We've got a number of clients that are, are building that out, and this could blow up really quickly. Potentially, this could go from one twosie units here to you know 30, 40, 50 right. units a year or more um, by 25, 26. And if it, if it does that, like this could be on its own, you know, tens of millions of dollars kind of business, right? Right. right. Yeah. Um, and so for that, we need to build out the the, the to that for that we need capital obviously but um we're also going to be further going down the path with space force so you know there's all about uh creating propellant to to drive uh to drive this refueling in space and so they're interested in being able to create metal propellant off of materials that are already up there for a variety of reasons um, and so we're pursuing that and there's, you know, this one, this project is only 15 months long. It'll be over, you know, in, in May or June of, of next year. And we want to go for the next level with that, with our partners at Sierra space and Astroscale, uh, and, and, and Neumann space as a supplier for the, you know, the test thruster there. Um, so we're in Mines, of course, as, as, actually on that one we're doing CSU because they're helping us with the, with the, uh, with the, testing and stuff with that we want to turn into stratify or tacfi kind of opportunity and try to get that into the program of, of the space force and uh, like stratify and Tac
0: TacFi are uh, where the company finds you know one dollar and they're matched by government money by two dollars so that is a
1: giant lever. I think it's one to one, but it, it, it or maybe it's yeah, it depends on how you do it. But it's, right,
0: just uh, it, matches one to one, two to one, or one to two. Regardless, there's a there's a very large government match to
1: private capital. And if if you do the full size of it and you have the full like one-to-one match, it's a sixty million dollar potential purse. Right. Yeah. That's and enough to actually do a mission.
0: Right. And That's if that popular. gets funded,
1: then like I would see us going from, you know, say the twenty-four to twenty-five, twenty-six time frame, building out an actual test mission where we go up into space with partners, you know, at Sierra and, and Astra Scale and whoever else we decide to bring on for this part of the project. Um to actually show that we can capture an object. Maybe we bring the object and release it and capture it, but show that you can capture an object, melt it down, turn it into something. Yeah. Also along the same time, along this in parallel to this, we're developing the NASA program further. And we've got a, a plan for um, a demonstration on the space station in, in early 2025 of the full-scale space foundry. So what we're testing in November is gonna be a device that we take to the space station, hopefully without too many other modifications. Um, and, and we're going to be testing it on the space station. We got Axiom partnering with us on that one and Zin uh, technology helping us, you know, get it integrated, um, on the space station to do that demo. And then from there, there's an opportunity to offer our first metal processing service in space, which would be, you know, if the Axiom module is there in time, we will offer it on the Axiom module and it will be sort of metal processing as a service okay. where. We have scrap material on the space station, which you would otherwise have to pay to send down. Right. We process it and turn it into materials for in-space manufacturing, and that could be ingots that can be used in the 3D printer. And there is a whole host of other applications that come out of these things. I mean, there are some terrestrial applications we're looking at, looking into as well in the mining industry. So there's, there's like a, it's all built around this one core technology of the space foundry and the tech stack that kind of supports that, you know, being a reality. Um, so I, I mean, I, I see, I'm pretty optimistic about doing this. The, the trick here is actually like figuring out how to, you know, scale it, it properly, matching that with the funding at the same time. And it's, it's a tricky balance. Yeah, um,
0: yeah. <laughs> it's not a trivial challenge, but... No, no, the uh, the financial engineering is almost as hard as the actual
1: engineering. Yeah, yeah well, raising money is a very time-consuming experience.
0: Yeah. <laughs> All right, Gary, thank you very much, sir. Really love having you here. It's amazing watching this story unfold in real time, right? As it's as it's as it's happening. So exciting. We'll keep, we'll keep asking you to come back and just kind of share how, how this is
1: going. Thank you very much. I appreciate it. Yeah, thanks for the opportunity to tell the story. Right
0: thank on. You. Have a great day. You too. Bye-bye.